Maybe we can get started with the talk. So I'll give context again. This, this set of three months, beginning with April, is and has been an exploration of the three characteristics. So this is dukkha, sometimes translated as suffering, anicca, impermanence, and anatta, not self. And as others have remarked in their talks this month, the three really meld together a lot. Um, we're focusing this month, and this is the last talk of this month, on dukkha, on suffering or unsatisfactoriness, however you choose to translate that. But when talking about one, really, I get muddled in the others. So when, you know, when we were figuring out how these talks were going to go, I kind of punted on trying to talk about dukkha in any kind of isolation. And so, so really, I'm, I'm talking about dukkha in the context of impermanence and, and also in the context of emptiness, this idea. And I'll explain what I mean by emptiness in more detail. Um, but this idea that, you know, a key to alleviating dukkha is understanding, really truly understanding impermanence. And a very deep form of impermanence is this idea of emptiness, which is, which is really to say that there isn't any such thing as an isolated, separate self. That notion is empty. We're interconnected. So I'll talk about those things in, in more detail today. So that's, that's really the, the structure of my talk. I, I wanted to start by going over again the three types of dukkha that have been mentioned in previous talks. But if you're like me, um, these things never stick in my mind very easily the first time or two, you know, and often someone will say, oh, yeah, the three characteristics, the three types of dukkha, the three this and that. And I'm like, OK, what are those again? You know, and I'll, I'll, my mind will be racing to go over them again. So I find it useful and I hope you do, too, to hear these things repeated and maybe in different perspectives from different people's points of view with their own stories, their own lenses. So uh, I wanted to go over these three because I find them especially, for me also, another thing that's helpful is kind of organizing information into buckets <laughs> and thinking of things in categories. And I can more under, easily understand a talk if I sort of have a sense of the structure of it. Uh, so I'll start by talking about the three types of dukkha, and then I'll go into how two of those types are connected to impermanence the ways that I see them, at least. So the first type of dukkha, which we've talked about before, is described as dukkha-dukkha. It's, it's the most straightforward, perhaps, of these. This is, you know, unpleasant physical or mental experiences. And really, what we're really talking about when we're talking about dukkha is our aversion to these. Yeah, you know, it's unavoidable that they're going to be physical and mental experiences that are unpleasant. Where we gain a little bit of choice and agency is in our reactions, in our responses, right? 
So that is often what is being discussed when we talk about Dukkha Dukkha, this first category. The second, and that's the category I'm going to talk less about today. The second uh, category is Sankara Dukkha, or the Dukkha of mental formations. And this is a little abstract. But uh, one way, my sort of go-to when I think of that, and I have, you know, words that I associate with it are, this is the suffering that comes from creating judgments and from having these, you know, anxiety-filled thoughts and ideas and structures about how things ought to be. You know, when we have sentences that start with, it's not fair, and I shouldn't, and they shouldn't, um, you know, these are the kinds of, these are the kinds of things we associate with Shankara Dukkha. Um, so I have a couple of stories on this that uh, I, I, I think of also. Uh, one that came up recently, I have this, uh, two friends who are really climate refugees. They've left the area they lived in because it was no longer sustainable to live there in a part of California. And they've been moving since then. They've been, uh, they've been uh, traveling, they've been staying with friends, um, and they've been trying to find some permanent place to, uh, to, to fix themselves again. And in the process of moving around, you know, they, they've really sort of honed their values. They've spent a lot of that time in retreat and in contemplation. And, you know, they've had these principles that they live by. And one of those principles is that they don't in this, like, you know, when you're moving a lot, you can be, you can, you can create a lot of waste. You can be buying a lot of things, but then have to be given away or thrown away and all of this. And they've really made it a principle to not do that. So they've had it kind of as this, you know, they've, it started with really seeing, you know, the, the pain or the consequence of, you know, purchasing new things, bringing them into the world, thinking about the productions and chains of supply that have to organize to create these things, thinking about the resources that go into them, and then thinking about, okay, using them. And in their situation, especially, it was using them in these very fleeting ways where they would have to then find another way of rehoming them or throwing them away or whatever it was. And so they made it a policy not to do that. They weren't going to purchase anything new. That was their goal while they were in this transitory period. And now they've found a place. And now it makes sense to accumulate some things. And they're really suffering this. One of the two in the couple was telling me, you know, she feels paralyzed by the idea now of purchasing new things. And yet she's in a location where not everything she can get and needs immediately can be bought secondhand or borrowed or done without. And really what has happened is, you know, one way of looking at this, and this is the way she herself described it. She's a deep practitioner. She has turned an awareness a knowledge, a see, a true seeing of all the processes that go together to create things. You know, when we buy something new, all the things that have to happen, she turned that, which was an organic felt seeing what's really going on 
into a rule, into a guideline, into a judgment. It kind of calcified and fixed. And now, even when the wise thing to do may be to buy some new things, because some of those things can't be you know, purchased, reused, she's encountering the suffering because she's really gotten a fixed judgment about this. This is a good example to me of Shankara Dukkha. These created, these calcified ideas that we have, that we can create as guidelines, you know, often practical guidelines to live our life, uh, that we then suffer the removal of or, or the disruption of when we have to come face to face with them and deconstruct them uh, as things change in our lives. The third kind of dukkha, vipari nama dukkha, I, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that one right. This is not wanting pleasant experiences to end. Or otherwise put, this is wanting the impermanent to be permanent, right? So if we think about the three kinds here, the first, that dukkha dukkha, that's kind of an aversion. That's like, oh, something in our experience we don't like, and we experience this aversion, this pushing away. Shankara dukkha, we went over. Viparanama dukkha, this is not wanting the good stuff to end. Right? This is that craving or clinging or attachment and the suffering of that. So uh, Richard Gombrich, in his book, What the Buddha Thought, he writes, we should not want permanence for ourselves or our loved ones because we're not going to get it. <laughs> right? Like just flat out, there's a good reason to not suffer this. If only we could not suffer this. You know, some stories here. Um, I might have told this one before. Uh, my grandmother. Um, my grandmother uh, lives in India. And when, and, you know, it's been every couple of years uh, I go and visit. My, my parents go and visit her every year. And as soon as we arrive, she's upset. Because she's already seeing the end of the visit. And she's like, what's the point in enjoying this? <laughs> you know, you're just going to be gone in a couple of weeks. I'm not, you know, what's the point? Why, why should I even like enjoy this? And you can really feel the pain in this. She's, she really so dearly values us being there that it's painful for her to appreciate that fleeting presence in the knowledge that it's already going to end, Right. You know, I experienced this recently. I was recently on vacation with my parents and my son, and it just struck me how fleeting of a moment it was. You know, my father is in his 80s. His memory's not doing great. His balance isn't great. He's already getting to a point where, you know, a, a lot of things slip by. A lot of things that he's experiencing new, newly in the world are things he's not going to remember in a few months, you know. And so, you know, it's easy to have these thoughts of, well, is this the last time he'll remember seeing my son? Will he remember seeing my son? You know, this being together, the four of us in one place, is this the last time that'll happen? Is it the last time it'll happen exactly this way? My son is 10. He's not going to be 10 next time we see each other, maybe, since he's turning 11 in June. He's certainly going to be growing up. And I was just feeling the fleeting nature of that moment. And one side of that fleeting moment is this not wanting, the, this sadness about it, 
right? You know, this recognizing how impermanent that moment is. We can think about our fear of death, right? This is a very basic thing, fear of others' death, as viparinama dukkha, right? So there's a paradox here. There's a way in which our suffering comes in some way from an understanding that things are impermanent, right? That's in a way what's causing my grandmother to recognize that, oh, this moment, it's kind of, it's the sadness is already in it because it's going to end, you know? Or my feeling on this vacation or fear of death, right? We understand in some way that things are impermanent, but there's something different that happens when we radically, truly understand impermanence, when we really come to terms with it, when instead of running away from that difficulty, we are with it and we sit with it and we, we, we make it our own. You know, we make it something that we're next to all the time. And we also know this, it can really turn around into gratitude. Right? That's the flip side of the coin here. We can understand that everything is precious and it's fleeting. And instead of suffering that, there is a choice we have, a sort of choice, to instead just not take things for granted. Right? What do we mean when we say we don't take things for granted? We really mean if something isn't granted, it could be taken away. This is fundamentally a way of acknowledging impermanence, right? And it's acknowledging it in this way, you know, where we, we've, where we, we've absorbed the suffering of that. We've understood the suffering. And it's not that the suffering is entire, you know, it's, it, we know that these things are impermanent. We know we're going to die. We know other people are going to die. But when we've sat with that enough, we can start to see beyond that, right? It's like in our meditation, letting our eyes adjust to the dark. We can see what else is there in those things. We've become a little bit more uncomfortable, uh, you could say, with impermanence. And then we can see the value. We can see the true value of everything in our experience. It's spring now, right? There's small ways in which we can see this. You know, the flowers in my garden have just started to come up and come out in some cases, right? And the hellebores, they're on their way out, <laughs> right? They've had their time, they're going. Inherent in all those blooms are the fact that they're going to wither and go away, right? But that's something we can come to terms with. We see it every year. We experience it. We know that the blooms coming up are part of the blooms withering. It's all together. And we can experience that fleeting moment. Oh, it must be late April. <laughs> this has come up and it, it can be joyous, right? How we see that. So this is a way in which getting comfortable with impermanence helps with this one type of dukkha, right? Viparinama dukkha, this not wanting pleasant experiences to end. If we really sit with that unpleasantness, that wanting the permanent to be per the impermanent to be permanent, we can start to see this preciousness. 
I also wanted to mention, you know, that understanding impermanence also can help with certain kinds of sankara dukkha, this, these mental formations, these judgments, right? So this is the story of my friends who were traveling and, you know, started to have these judgments about ways to live and ways, things they didn't want to do. They have to now unpack and unravel. The I shoulds, I shouldn't, they should, they shouldn't. We can begin to believe, one part of the Sankara Dukkha, one type is, we can begin to believe that hard situations won't end, right? That, there's, that they're permanent, right? Anyone who's ever gone through a very low period knows that it has this way of making us believe that it's here to stay, or that maybe it's the real us, or this is the real thing. And any moments of joy were, those were the fleeting moments. Those were the not true states. And this, this is how things are, and they're here to stay. And of course, we know that's not true, right? We know that all of these things are impermanent. You know, other examples, when we're seeking a relationship, we're out of a relationship and we're seeking one, we can begin to believe we're unlovable. If we're looking for a job, we can believe we're unemployable. You know, we, there are all these things that we subtly start to believe are permanent. And the impermanence here is a salve. If we can remember, if we can remember our experience, if we can start to note, and how do we begin to remember this? It comes from paying attention. It comes from practice. Just noticing over and over how everything's impermanent. How all the things we felt at one point if we look back and read our journal, you know, six months later, wow, that sure has changed. That sure feels different. You know, it can be astonishing to remember how impermanent everything is, especially those negative things. I just wanted to add as a side note that impermanence can also be a treatment for this sankara dukkha, right? These judgments or these ideas of how the world is that we calcify and hold on to. We can remember through our experience how impermanent they truly are. So the next thing I wanted to talk about today in the remaining time is how understanding emptiness, right? This is a very radical form of impermanence, can be a salve to suffering. So emptiness, this word, this word has thrown me off so many times because the word emptiness doesn't mean in this context the way I, I want it, the, what I want it to mean <laughs> or how I think of that word normally. This is really understanding that we are not permanent, fixed, isolated selves, right? You know, we start to believe in these separate selves of our separate identities, concrete identities, and we create expectations for that we can't live up to. And if we really understood that we're connected, that, you know, Thich Nhat Hanh uses the word, we are interbeing, then we can alleviate that suffering. So some examples of our belief in our separate selves, you know, when we're young, when we're younger, 
we're very often trying to fit in, right? There's this phase of life where we're trying to find ourselves and we're trying on different identities. And early on, we, we come to think of things we want to be, right? And we begin to believe that we are a certain way when we're really not sometimes. Maybe we act tough, right? You know, when we're, when we're young, we're trying to be tough. Maybe, maybe we're acting heterosexual when we're not heterosexual. Maybe we're trying to live up to some impossible career goal early in our careers. Maybe we think we're going to single-handedly eliminate poverty or cure cancer or whatever lofty goals we've set for ourselves in our lives. And we start to recognize that these things, we've created identities or notions of ourselves that aren't, aren't, so, aren't really us or aren't achievable or they create suffering in their identities. When we're older, we, the things we're associating with ourselves can fall away, right? Maybe we were athletes when we were younger and we can no longer perform the way we used to. We cling to this, this causes great suffering, right? We're forced to come to terms with the end of these identities. Maybe we valued our mental abilities or being at the top of our fields or whatever it was. And we see, we start to see people arise who are better, who have knowledge of the latest techniques, who are more mentally sharp, right? This can also manifest in our fear of death. This ending of the physical body uh, that we've come to expect will keep going, right? In all these subtle ways, we forget we're going to die. So what's the reality? These are examples of our belief in separate self. So the reality is we're always changing. You know, we're composed of tons of individual organisms and cells, and they're always dying. New ones are replacing them. You know, the, the cells that composed us a couple of decades ago, very, very few of those cells still exist, right? What does that really mean? Who, you know, what, you know, there's this whole idea of the ship of Theseus that keeps getting, you know, parts keep getting replaced. Is it still the same ship? But what about ourselves, right? That's, that's what it's pointing to. Are we really these fixed selves? Are we telling ourselves a story that we're the same person from moment to moment and just passing on that story? When we decompose the out components of this amalgamation, right? We, we think of it as a very dramatic thing when we die. And in one way of thinking about it is all these components simply move on <laughs> and they create other forms of life. Other, they move to other, you know, uh, amalgamations of energy, right? When we're alive, we fail to understand how dependent we are on others. There's a David White quote that I want to read. Oh, no, I'm going to read the Thich Nhat Hanh quote <laughs> on this. He's describing the work of biologist Lewis Thomas. He says, our body is a community, and the trillions of non-human cells in our body are even more numerous than the human cells. Without them, we could not be here in this moment. Without them, we would not be able to think to feel or to speak. There are no solitary beings. This whole planet is one giant living, breathing cell with all its working parts linked in symbiosis. We 
can think of ourselves in the context of our families. We all have traits and characteristics of our parents and grandparents, like it or not. <laughs> and we can think of ourselves when we think in our lineages of being continuations. Right? We're just the next thing. If we have children, they're just the next thing that succeeds after us, not entirely separate. So when we accept these ideas, right, we can relax into the idea of not taking ourselves so seriously. We don't need to save the world single-handedly or win the Olympics, right? We can, we can re-envision our, our depths and think about, you know, this continuation, right? I, I had this moment, I've mentioned this before, after a meditation retreat where I was in a grove of sequoias and I just thought of how graceful the death of the sequoia, so there was a dead, there was the trunk of a dead sequoia right in the middle and all the sequoias surrounding it, right? You know, we're the children of this one. And it was just a beautiful reminder that that dead sequoia probably had no notion of its own death. It didn't think of itself as dead. It was just some organic matter that was now this other organic matter, <laughs> these other sequoias that had sprung up next to it. There was probably no notion in sequoia that there had been a death. There was just more sequoia and it was continuing sequoia. There is a forest and not just an individual tree. So I, I want to read at the end this quote by David White. This is the one I was talking about earlier, which I feel like connects some of these ideas. We talked earlier, we talked about a few different things. We talked about how noting impermanence can really transform our feeling of wanting impermanent things to be permanent into an appreciation, into a gratitude, right? And we're talking now about this understanding that we aren't these fixed and permanent selves. We really are these moving organic beings. And we can start to take our own lives, our failures, our suffering, a little less seriously if we recognize that, our own death. He has a quote that I feel like wraps this up quite beautifully. This comes from David White's book, Consolations, and this is part of his definition of the word gratitude in that book. So this comes from, in that book, he defines several ordinary terms in sort of non-ordinary ways. He has this to say about gratitude. Gratitude is the understanding that many millions of things must come together and live together and mesh together and breathe together in order for us to take even one more breath of air. But the underlying gift of life and incarnation as a living, participating human being is a privilege that we are miraculously part of something rather than nothing. Okay, so I wanted to give us the opportunity to divide into groups and just talk about anything that's come up. Welcome back, everyone.
there's some time now. Hi. <laughs> there's there's some time now to uh, to raise any thoughts or questions or comments that you have that came from either the talk or from the group discussions you just had. Noting only that, you know, anything anyone said in the group that is not your experience, but someone else's uh, should be held in confidence. So, you know, not to speak directly about what someone else said. Yeah, Lillian and Nikhil. Uh, I'm a first grade teacher and something that has come up with some of my students is a reluctance to move on to the next grade. And like one girl has said specifically, like, I don't want to grow up. Um, and I was just kind of wondering, I, I don't feel that I have a position as a public school teacher to bring a lot of this into explicitly into what I teach. But I was just kind of wondering, like, the idea of impermanence and mortality, how do others um, bring that into like the marketplace or like in their relations with other people who are not practitioners and maybe don't see mortality or the ending of things as like a large part of every day. Mm. How do other people do that? This sounds like a group question. I wonder if there are ways and strategies people have that they want to mention. Oops, Susie, yeah. Um, so I don't know if I've, I think I've met Lillian and Nikhil in person years ago before you moved to Idaho. But I feel like I know you and I was just filled with such joy that these children are being taught by you and that you're going to, you already know the answer and it's already in there. And it's just going to come out in, I just, I feel such um, gratitude that you decided to be a teacher for these little ones. And um, I just, I feel all um, warm in my, you know, that, that that's the joy of the practice that when we trust in it, it's just going it, to, you're going to find the words because you care so much about this little one who doesn't want to grow up. Oh, bless him or her. You know, haven't we all been there? Or hurry up and grow up, whatever. I mean, what or the other. Anyway, I just I just have, feel so much trust that you already have all those answers inside of you. Will. So thanks for sharing that. Yeah. Yeah, I wanted to ask uh, Lauren and Judith, are, are you responding to Lillian or is it different things that you want to say? Judith, you're responding and Lauren is too. Uh -huh. I think Lauren was first, so I'll start with Lauren. Well, first, I think Suze's response was wonderful. So when I heard her response, I just wanted to step back. <laughs> But it did inspire me to think, I was a teacher and I did teach uh, little young ones, first graders, and um, I used a lot of poetry and letting them express themselves. So I think that kind of piggybacking on what Suze was saying, that um, 
you know how when we share something and ask a question to our teachers like Tim and Twery, they might say, oh, tell me more about that or something like that. So I think getting doing some kind of a creative um, expression with the kids on on things like that, you know, like what don't you want to do or what do you fear or anything, you could find a poem that uh, speaks to you or a question that speaks to you. So my suggestion is to do creative expression in some way. It might be art. I don't know. But dance. I don't know. Yeah. Thank Lovely. you. Yeah. Yeah. And Judith? Yeah, well, I was saying in the group that my grandson, who's now 15, when he was younger, he did not want to grow up. He had looked the situation over and seen <laughs> all the things that adults had to deal with. And he just said, kids have a better deal, you know. And um, his parents, who are, are pretty wise, uh, they just they just let him. They didn't try to argue him out of his position. You know, they just asked him, how, why do you feel that way? And listened to what he had to say. And okay, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you got a point, right? Uh, and of course, time takes care of that because obviously he is growing up. There's no way out of it. And now uh, apparently he has decided, okay, I, I'm ready for this. And so it just kind of happened. Uh, and I think if anybody, you know, he's stubborn, like everyone in our family is. And if anybody tried to argue him out of that or convinced him, oh, yeah, yeah, you should, you shouldn't feel that way. That, that would not have worked. But it was, it was just more a case of honoring where he was at at the time and knowing that life would take care of it. Thank you, Judith. Yeah, I, I have a son who, he's 10 now. Uh, he often remarks that he kind of wishes he was younger again. <laughs> you know, it's like life is already too tough as a 10-year-old, and he wishes he was younger. Um, and, I, yeah, I, I think the tack I take is similar to what Judith is saying. Like, in a way, my instinct as a parent and it is initially I, I want him to not suffer. I want him to not feel that. And I want him, you know, like I can imagine wanting myself, if I were in your shoes, not wanting the kid who doesn't want to go to the next grade to not feel the way they do. <laughs> um, but maybe the best thing I can do for my son is to give him the tools to explore that and understand it and learn like, oh, okay, yeah, this is, this is how we suffer. <laughs> And we have these feelings about things and we don't want things to change. And sometimes they do. And getting the beginnings of that processing in a dirt at an early age just sounds like it, it could be really powerful as, as they grow older. I think there's also an element of story. So the story is, well, if I go to the next grade, I don't get to keep whatever the things are I liked about this experience or who I am now. And so um, I work with students and uh, as a therapist and as an advisor. And one of the things we do is talk about what are you going to bring with you into this next stage of your life? What is important to you um, that, that comes with you? Like the sequoia trees you talked about, you know, that the sequoia moved on to another stage and brought other things with it. And, 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 
like for me as an adult, I've made, I've really welcomed the playfulness that's always been a part of me to come with me, even though I'm not, you know, seen as serious as other adults are, because that's just a part of who I am and what I love. Um, so I think that recognition, like saying, so when you say you don't want to grow up, what is it that you don't want to let go of? What is it that's important? And how, what are ways that you can bring that with you? That growing up can still be, you know, we are all of our ages still, right? We have all of that thing, all of that within us and maintaining relationships. And then the other thing I'll just say is that I think that there's a real loss of rituals of transition, that rituals of transition, they can be big or little, but they allow us to say, I completed that stage. And like the family or the community saying, you completed that stage and welcome into this other stage. Um, And I think that it helps us almost like build a ladder or braid this, 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 web of of meaning and web of continuity um and i just i think that a lot of i think one of the reasons that like for example people are really attached to weddings is that that's one of the few rituals of adulthood that exist um and so i think that if we can kind of think about what we can bring with us and also take these moments of celebration and reflection and and softness around the anxiety of the next stage I think it can be really powerful and it all plays into that idea of attachment and things that are dropping away and things that are ongoing and the cycle. Thank you. I'll make space for, Oh, I see there's a hand, Bruce and Sean, you have your hands up. Uh, Perhaps. So I think Rosie also uh, was waving. Oh, Rosie was waving. She's still there to to, to say something, maybe after. Lizzie, go ahead. ahead. Um, I I was um, a teacher, too, and sort of played the role teacher as counselor, working with college students at the same time as working with students. But one of the things I used was what we called a magic circle, where kids all got together and talked about, you know, there was a topic and, and everybody could put their input into it. But this sounds like a very rich topic for kids to talk about and to share and to get to know each other better and to enrich the learning experience, make it more alive than it sometimes can be with all the subject matter stuff. Anyway. Yeah. Thank you, Rosie. Yeah. So we're near Bruce and Sean. I think we probably have a minute that we could spare and then and we'll go on to announcements. Yeah. Um, I, I enjoyed what everyone, everyone said, um, well, I don't want to grow up either. That's how I feel. (laughs) I mean, I'm at the end of my life and Bruce is at the end of his life. And I just noticed that I, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to grow up. And, um, I feel a lot of grief about, about this stage of life. And so to put these two things together, the young kids and the old kids, what I, what I would want if I were expressing this to someone, my feelings, I would want compassion and kindness, number one. And then we can play games. <laughs> but I really want somebody to understand how I feel and take the time to just listen to how I feel because 
it, it it's hard. You know, there's certain stages of life that are just really challenging, more challenging to some than others. And, um, all, all tied into impermanence and dukkha. That's where it's at. Impermanence and dukkha. What, how are we experiencing it? How can we not, why are we not letting go? Just sometimes you just need somebody to listen. Thank you, Sean. Yeah. yeah. Wonderful. I want to move on to the announcements we have. 